בוקר טוב. That works too. That works too. Any other languages that anybody wants to... Okay, so... so isn't it beautiful? That's one of the reasons I wanted to sit here, is so as I can just look out the window and, and enjoy that view. It's just beautiful. Driving over this morning, I, I, I suddenly caught the mountains and I just screamed, ah, look at that! It was great. So it's really, really, um, really lovely to, to have a little intimate group. This room yesterday felt very packed. I don't know how many of you were here, but it was... It was, and it felt very packed. It's nice, it's nice to, have a, to have a smaller group. And... and um, maybe a little bit more of an opportunity to interact and to, and to discuss and to talk. Despite all my offers yesterday, nobody interrupted me. So, uh, so please, please feel free and, uh, and, we can, and we can engage in discussion. Ah, of all the things that I'm talking about in my time here in Orange County, this is the one, this, this particular series is the one that I feel, it's, it's, it's the most difficult one for me which is probably why I'm doing it first thing in the morning. And the reason why it, it is most difficult is because this is, of all the things that I'm going to be talking about here, this is the one that I'm actually working on right now. This is, this is the stuff that's, that's, freshest, that's freshest for me, and that if I wasn't, um, if I wasn't here, this is, the, this is the stuff that I would be talking about, that I would be talking about back home. This is the stuff I'm teaching at the moment in the university. This is the stuff I'm presenting to my colleagues, and I'm still in the process of being ripped apart by them on all of this, and we're engaged in debates, and, and things, are, things are fresh and, and very, much, um, very much open for discussion. But what I... What I um, what I want to put on the table is a very personal concern of mine, which I think is, is one that we can share. Um, and I would even go so far as to say that I think we should share, um, which is the whole question of where is Zionism going? It's, it's a big issue. Oh, look, styrofoam, look at that. What a come down after your paper cups. The... Um, the whole question of where is Zionism going? Um, I'm very, very involved at the moment in terms of my own thinking in, in the feeling that we have a need to rethink the fundamental principles of Zionism. And I think we need to rethink the fundamental principles of Zionism for three very clear, three very clear reasons, okay? Um, the first of those is the fact of the ongoing conflict that has been part of Israel's history since the very first seconds of its inception. Um, I suppose that is not exactly true. It's been part of Israel's history well before its inception. I could see people waiting for me to say that. Sometimes there are rhetorical devices. I set things up and then I, I'm allowed to do that. Um, don't jump. Um, it, the conflict has been there since before the inception of the State of Israel. I think it's a fundamental experience. And I know that there's a lot of political debate about right and wrong and who, who should do what in order to solve it. I'm not so interested in thinking about that right now. Um, I'm just interested in re-evaluating what it means um, for the Jewish people to have emerged from a condition, from one condition to another, um, on the coattails of a particular ideology which hasn't sorted itself out. 
I think the recognizing that it hasn't sorted itself out means, okay, time to, time, to, time to stop and rethink. Second thing that I think is very much on the table when we, when we look at Zionism and try and reevaluate it and try and understand it is the simple fact, and I've, I've spoke about this in another lecture and it's not the topic of today, um, but the simple fact that um, the Zionist movement anticipated the ingathering of the exiles and the negation of the diaspora. Um, the assumption was that it was only a matter of time before all Jews would settle in the land of Israel, and the resettling of all Jews in the land of Israel was an essential component of the Zionist vision. In order for the Zionist vision to fulfill itself even, at least according to the dominant strand of Zionist thought, that needed to happen. And the fact that it not only hasn't, but, but is not going to, at least in the foreseeable future, um, demands a significant, a significant rethinking. The third reason that I'm really not going to talk about today, although it is of tremendous concern to me, is the simple fact that the Zionist movement, when it was designed, um, was designed in a world in which the vast majority of Jews lived in Western countries and were Ashkenazim. Um, and the product of the Holocaust is a, is a, a radical um, demographic rearrangement of the spread of the Jewish world and the simple fact that Israel is not in any straightforward sense an Ashkenazi country or a Western country means that Zionism needs to be, needs to be rethought um, on that level as well. I might touch a little bit on that issue uh, this morning, but really just a little taste. It's a huge subject and, I, and I, um, I'm, not going to be, I'm not going to be going into it too much. So what I would like to do is to talk about the first Predominantly in this series, I'd like to talk about the first issue. The first issue, and I'd like to try and look at a spread from, of Zionist thought that runs all the way from you know, the radical left in the founding generations of the Zionist movement, the, the group referred to as Brit Shalom, and we're going to look specifically next time, those of you who get up again for another morning session, we're going to spend our second session looking at Martin Buber, who, though he was not officially a member of the Brit Shalom, I think he was the, the most eloquent um, um, thinker associated with the ideology of that group and I also think he's got a message that is very powerful and very pertinent for today and we're going to spend a whole session looking at Martin Buber. The third and final session um, which if you get up for that one you'll get special awards um, the third and final session in this series yeah Ari's providing them um, so yeah. the, 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 third, the third and final session in this series will look at Gushe Munin um, it, it's uh, a movement inside Israel that I think has tremendous importance, um, but I also think it has tremendous potential and that it's usually, I think it's usually misunderstood. So I'm in the business of, of looking at, at ideas and looking at, at um, historical ideas and reconsidering how we should understand them and how we should conceptualize them in order to retell the story of, of the Jewish people. Okay, that's, that's really what I do. So what am I trying to do this morning? I'd like to try and reconceptualize what I think is one of the central notions of Zionist thought, which is the idea of statehood itself. What is statehood? And how does the Jewish, how does the Jewish people understand its emergence um, from a diasporic condition into a condition of Jewish statehood? Okay, now the, the, usual, the usual narrative for understanding the Jewish entry into statehood talks about two fundamental components 
of, of the idea of the Jewish state or the purpose of the Jewish state. I'm not a political philosopher, so I'm not going to talk about the mechanisms of statehood. I'm going to talk about the purposes of statehood. When we talk about the purposes of statehood, the foundational regular narrative that is used to describe the entry of the Jewish people into the, into the idea of statehood has two principal components. Number one, we want to provide a homeland for the Jewish people. And the idea of the homeland and the state became fundamentally connected to each other. Not necessarily, by the way. If you just think about it for a minute, does a homeland necessarily mean a modern, secular, political, democratic entity, right? Is that, is, that, is that what Jewish homeland must mean? It's what it came to mean very, very powerfully. It, also, it became virtually self-evident in Zionist thinking that we were looking for a safe homeland for the Jewish people that would provide a solution to the problem of Jewish persecution, right? So that's component number one. And component number two is the idea that the Jewish people have spent thousands of years as an abnormal people, as an abnormal nation, and that by ensconcing Jewish collective identity in political statehood, we can create a situation where the Jewish people will be am kichol ha'amim. I don't know if that's a phrase that you're familiar with, but a nation like all other nations. Okay, the aspiration, as weird as this may sound, right? It really does sound weird when we think about it. But the, the fundamental aspiration of, of the founders of, the, of political Zionism was really a chapter or a leaf out of the same book of this ongoing project in 19th century Europe that was to achieve the appropriate assimilation of the Jewish people into European culture. The Jewish people, the project, the dominant project of European life in the 19th century was the assimilation of the Jewish people into European culture. There were various different, there were various different articulations of that. We want to assimilate and preserve our religious identity. We want to assimilate and disappear altogether. There were all sorts of varieties. Right? I'm, not, I'm not planning on teaching a, a history of 19th century assimilation projects in Europe. It, but, but trust me, this is something I could teach about. There's a lot of, it's a, it's a, very, it's a, very, it's a very prominent um, theme. And generally the way the story is told is that Herzl had this, this remarkable turning point experience in, in, in the Paris of the 1890s when he discovered that this just isn't gonna work and changed his tactic and recognized that the way to accomplish Jewish assimilation was instead of assimilating the Jewish people among the nations as individuals, it would be to assimilate the Jewish nation amongst the community of nations as a collective nation, right? So this was a fundamental impulse in the Zionist movement, the assimilation of Jews in Europe. Now, without saying, without saying too much about this, again, because I want to get into my subject, without saying too much about this, one can understand that a project that is designed to assimilate the Jews of the world into the culture of Western Europe is going to have a very hard time, A, with religious Jews, who do not want to assimilate at all, and we'll get to that, and we'll talk about that when we do Rav Cook for lunch, which I think is next week. We're having Rav Cook for lunch next week. <laughs> Watch out for the hairs on the beard. They get stuck in your teeth. 
But also, if the project is the assimilation of the Jews into the culture of Western Europe, into the political culture of Western Europe, that's not going to work brilliantly when they figure out that they're not in Europe, but that the assimilation project is actually taking place in the Middle East. And the Middle East isn't Europe. And this alienation of, of, the, of the, the Jewish state from the Middle East is one of the fundamental questions that I think we're dealing with all the time. Right? I'm not going to say very many political things, but I'll just say that if you notice the dominant solution that people are looking for to the conflict in the Middle East is to establish a huge dividing wall that will allow Israel to be part of the Western world. Then there'll be a big wall, and that's where the Eastern world will, will start. Right or wrong, practical, not practical, let's put it out there and notice it. That The two-state solution that people are very excited about is a solution that is consistent with one of the fundamental goals of Zionism, which was the assimilation of Jewish nationality into the Western political world. And this has been the fundamental orientation of the State of Israel, politically and culturally, um, for a very, very long time. I think, this is in, I think this is in flux. I think it's in change. I don't think it's, it's, there's very much flux politically at the moment. I think there's a lot of cultural flux, and, and, things, are, and things are changing. But what I want to do is to go back is to go back to the beginning and to look at this look at this fundamental motivation, this idea of what is a state, and to ask, are we understanding the notion of state correctly when we talk about the purpose of a state as providing a homeland for a nation, and when we talk about the purpose of a state as allowing the Jewish people to become Am Kechol Ha'amim? Is that what a state does? Is that the history of statehood? And if we can tell the story of the history of statehood a little bit differently, then perhaps we can engage in the project that I think is of paramount importance right now, which is to reimagine, to reimagine Zionism, right? To reimagine Zionism, to reinvigorate it, to reconstruct it. Part of the story of reconstructing it, which is designed to confront those three big questions, the conflict, the relationship with the diaspora, and the meeting of East and West. Part of the process of reconstructing Zionism, I'd like to suggest, is to try and tell the story a little bit differently, to tell the history of Zionism just a little bit differently, break it out of the narrative of homeland and am kechol ha'amim, and try and tell that history a little bit differently, okay? That's what I'm doing when I'm not giving these lectures. I'm sitting in, 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 the, in the beautiful apartment that I have there opposite the bay and trying to write a book on this at the moment. So it's all very fresh for me. And I, and I want to share with you some of my initial thoughts and some ideas during the course, during the course of this series. Ad Khan general introduction, right? That's the general introduction. Any, any questions before, before I launch into some of the details? We have an intimate group, which means that we can do this. Yeah, go ahead. I said the Am Kechol Ha'amim, becoming a nation like the other like the other nations. I'm not talking just I'm not talking here about the principles of Zionism, but the principle of statehood in Zionism, right? The function of the state. I think that Zionism and statehood are very very closely connected to each other. In other words, the fundamental idea in Zionism is related to creating 
a Jewish state. So we're embracing the notion of statehood as a foundation for our collective identity. That's, that's I think, the central idea in Zionism. There are others. Um, the return to the land of Israel. There are, there are, there are resurrections of, of very deep Jewish um, principles. But what it boils down to is the idea of establishing a Jewish state, right? Which is why, you know, Yom Ha'atzma'ut is the day that statehood is declared, right? Well, that's more or less where I'm going. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. I think there's an irony here. I, I, was, I wasn't trying to conceal that irony. I was actually trying to lay it pretty thick. Um, I hope it came across. But absolutely, yes, thank you for the question. The, the point is, yes, there is a fundamental irony here, which is to, which is to try and, and solve the Jewish problem by becoming like everybody else. And the question of whether or not Jews are like everybody else and the Jewish history is like everybody else's history is one of those questions that is called into question. Oh, that's, one, that's one of the issues that's, that's debated in Israeli society all the time. Are we supposed to be different? Are we supposed to live to a different standard? And are we supposed to define our collective purpose according to a different teleology? Do we have a different understanding of what it means to be a people? Um, do we need to accept biblical notions of the Jewish people as having a special purpose? Does amskula affect right, the idea of chosen people? affect Zionism? Or, do, or is it responsible maybe for chauvinisms that we're never going to get over? And, and if we get hung up on these idea of Amsgula and chosen people, we're going to find ourselves, we're going to find ourselves in a very difficult position. Okay, so what I'm looking at is this question of what is, what is this idea of statehood all about? And one of the things that I, that I want to take for granted, right, I'm not, I don't want to question this, is that the Zionist idea is about embracing the notion of statehood. I think, that's, I think that's fundamental. The Zionist idea is about embracing the notion of statehood. But what is statehood? What does it mean? Where does it come from? I spent a lot of years in my life um, studying the medieval world. I find the medieval world very, very fascinating. And one of the things that is really striking about the medieval world when we compare it with the modern world is that there's no such thing as a state in the medieval world. People, people talk today about states when they describe the medieval world. But, but there's a huge misunderstanding if you apply you know, modern ideas of statehood to your descriptions of collective identity in the medieval world. Not just in the Jewish medieval world. I'm talking about outside of the Jewish, of the Jewish, of the, of the Jewish world. Medieval society was feudal. Right? Not, not based on the idea of the state. And if anybody has ever had any insight into feudalism, you'll discover that the last thing that you can say about a feudal, a feudal society is that it's got a centralized and organized identity, right? So there's some amazing things that go on in feudal societies. Basically, you have, you have very personal, interpersonal relationships that create political identity. So you have lords and vassals. Right? You actually become a vassal by bowing down in front of your lord. He places his hand upon your head. It's very significant. He places his hand upon your head. And you make an oath to him. And once you have made the oath to him, you are beholden to him. Which basically means that you need to help him in a time of war. You need to go and help him in a time of war. 
The thing that people don't really notice about feudal society is that there was no social hierarchy to this vassal-lord relationship. So you could have kings who were the vassals of lords and barons, and vice versa, obviously. But the social hierarchy was all over the place. People who you would think are at the pinnacle of society could be beholden, could be beholden unto others. So what you end up with is this decentralized, you end up with this decentralized mishmash that doesn't really produce a clear sense of collective identity. Identity is a kind of association which is rooted in a religious, in a religious oath. That's the way, by the way, that guilds operated in, in, in medieval society. People were connected to each other by a religious oath. And the religious oath had all sorts of rituals which expressed its nature. Right? So, for example, if you were a carpenter, then you had special knowledge which entitled you to enter into the guild of carpenters. You had to make a special oath that you would keep the secrets of that guild to yourself. And then you had to participate in a, in a ritual meal with the carpenter's guild in your, wherever you were, in your hamlet or in your town or even in your city. And you were beholden to them in some kind of a religious, some kind of a religious binding. Right? We see this today, by the way, with Freemasons. They're one of those guilds that has still survived. I don't know if anybody in the room is a Freemason. I'll check you out for the handshakes later. But, but that's, one of those, that's one of those organizations that, that, that claims to hold on to sacred knowledge, to create a relationship by oath, and to practice religious practices together in order to create a religious, a shared religious identity. The identity was sacred. Collective identity was sacred. The striking process that changed the world and that really starts with the Reformation, I'm going back a long way now, but in the 16th and the 17th centuries, the striking process that changes the world is that we don't get rid of all of this sanctity. It never goes away. But that this sanctity is secularized. I know that sounds like a contradiction in terms, but it's not. The sanctity is secularized. Ultimately, the notion of secularization is the transferal of theology, the binding force. We are bound to a higher cause. We have an oath which makes us beholden upon each other. That idea, which is never done away with, is transferred into something new that doesn't, it doesn't really exist. It's an imagined vision of something that doesn't really exist and it's there all the time. It surrounds us all the time and we don't even know that it's there. There are special moments when you can see it. Let me give you an example of one of them and then you'll figure out what I'm talking about. Did anybody watch the Obama inauguration on television? Did you watch it? Was anyone there? Now, apart from the f you were there? Oh, you watched it. Apart, apart from the fact, apart from the fact that, that um, he, he messed up the oath, right? And remember that there is an oath, right? Swearing allegiance and, and, and I'm sure you can all repeat the language. But there's an oath. But apart from the fact that there was an oath, there was something very significant that caught me. One of those special moments that the anthropologist Victor Turner calls a moment that is betwixt and between. Because Obama was sworn in late. Did you, did you notice that? He's supposed to be sworn in at 12 o'clock. 
right? And I don't know what happened. Maybe Michelle didn't get her shoes straightened out. Something went wrong. They were a little bit late. And he was actually sworn in about 12, 11, right? And the big question is, of course, if George Bush stopped being president at 12 o'clock, right, and Obama was only sworn in at 12, 11, who was president for those 11 minutes? Where did they go? Of course, at that very moment, Iran decides to fire off a nuclear weapon and we've got to figure out, you know, who gets to make the decision. But, 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 but seriously, seriously, just stop for a second and think. Where, where, who's president for those 11 minutes? Now, I'm sure there is a constitutional answer and I presume it's the, it's the, it's the, 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 the judge of the Supreme Court, right? Oh, okay, whoever it is, whoever it is. What happens in that very moment is you get a glimpse, you get a little crack in the system that allows you to see what is the, ima what is the imagined community of the state. Now that is a very, very sacred structure. It's a thing that surrounds us all the time. It's perpetual like God. It never goes away. It's there all the time. And it was an, it's an invention. There isn't anything tangible that you can point at and say, this is the thing. But it, it, is, it is a fundamental part of our experience of modern life. There's this thing out there that provides us permanently and all the time, perpetually, with a, a context in which we live. So if I go over to Britain where things are a little bit, are a little bit um, more familiar to me, the king is dead. Long live, long live the king. Now, of course, the interesting question, I mean, it's clear, the king is dead, long live the king. But what happens in the time that it takes to say the king is dead, long live the king, that's one of those cracks. It's a little bit quicker, right? But that's, that's one of those cracks where we have a sense of, it's okay. That's one of those cracks. Tell them to sell. Um, <laughs> then tell them to cook. Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. What I'm claiming, and this is not me, by the way, this is one of the classical founding um, theories for describing secularization. Um, Hans Schmidt is the author of this. What, what, I'm, what I'm pointing out, what I'm claiming is that when modern society becomes secularized, what we have is not, the not a complete secularization, but we have a secularization of a religious sanctity which becomes a secular sanctity. Okay? The idea that I'm, that, I'm, that I'm sharing with you is the notion of politics as a form, inescapably, as a form of political theology. Right? There is a political theology. It's always there. There's a wonderful history of this by Kantorovich called The King's Two Heads, right? which talks about the, the, the individual head of the king, right? which is just the thing sitting on his shoulder, and the symbolic head of the king, which represents the state. And it's, an, it's, a, it's a brilliant historical analysis of, of absolutist monarchies in France. Right? But the idea, the idea that I'm trying to share with you is that when we buy into the notion of the state, right, we're buying into a form 
of sacred collective identity. Okay, now, this notion of sacred collective identity becomes very, very visible, particularly in the period of colonization, right, of colonialization. Because the question of who is in and who is out becomes very, very stark in the period of colonialization. Because people start to discover that the, that the power of the state to rule over others and the people who are members of the state, the citizens of the state, are not, are not the same thing. There are populations that are ruled by the state and there are populations that are part of the state. And this distinction between populations that are ruled by the state, colonial populations, as opposed to populations that are part of the state and live within the fabric of the state, and this brings me really to the first point that I'm trying to make here, that tension, which is critical to understanding the nature of statehood, that's the tension that Jews are struggling with in the 19th century. When we talk about cultural emancipation, or enlightenment, or haskalah, one of the fundamental points that the Jewish people are trying to accomplish in Western society is they are trying to make the claim that culturally they belong to the state and are not colonials living close to home in the state. The quest for Jewish citizenship right, in 19th century Europe isn't just about rights. It isn't just about being able to practice our religion freely. Jews did that in the Middle Ages. Don't kid yourselves. Jewish life in the Middle Ages was not all about persecution. If you add up all the persecutions, there were lots of persecutions in the Middle Ages, but you add them all up, so there's one every 20 years or so, and they're all spread out in different places. Yes, the First Crusade was terrible, but it lasted from 1096 to 1099, and it really affected the people of Germany and the Rhineland only. It had very little impact on the Jews of France, and the ones in the Rhineland were affected for the four or five weeks between Pesach and, Sukkot, uh, Pesach and Shavuot of 1096, and after that, life went back to normal, and then nothing else happened that was persecutory for those Jews for at least another 100 years. So we have Jewish life, is, it, there's tremendous prosperity of Jewish life in the Middle Ages. Right? Where else would Rashi come from? Right? There was prosperity, there was renaissance of life in the Middle Ages. The big transition is not about being part of, is not about being able to prosper as opposed to not being able to prosper. Jews played a tremendous price in the 19th century and suffered tremendous persecution in the 19th century. That's not the difference between modernity and pre-modernity. The difference between modernity and pre-modernity is the move from a feudal society that's decentralized, in which the Jews are, are like another little guild of, of an independent sacred identity, to moving into a society where they are potentially, they potentially have the capacity to show their entitlement to belong to this ethereal, sacred thing, the state. When the state becomes the state, and it's not necessarily Christian, but it's, it's got an identity which is abstract, then, then, then the Jewish community tries to become part of it. It tries to show that Jewish culture qualifies as European culture, that the fundamental principles of European culture are echoed in Jewish culture, or to put it in Mendelssohn's terms, that Judaism has a universal dimension to it that overlaps in its rationality with all of the rest of Western human 
thought. Jews can be humanists. Jews can be rational. Look at the Talmud. It's rational. It's anything but rational, by the way, for anyone who's studied it. It's nuts. That's what makes it so wonderful. But but the argument was to try and present it as rational, to present Jewish culture as qualifying. Zionism, if we make a step forward, is the attempt to show that Jewish collective identity can qualify according to the same standards. Okay, so that's a critical first piece of the puzzle. Now, now things are going to get a little bit worse. One of the ways in which the state functions and is in this kind of, it provides this abstract security for everybody who lives in it. This is very well known. Is the state achieves this by gaining a monopoly on violence. States monopolize violence. There's something very violent about that moment Right, where you're 15 minutes late for the inauguration, don't worry, <laughs> something's going to kick in straight away. The state will always be there. This omnipresence of statehood is, is actually quite a violent structure. If we think about it, the idea is to sublimate violence and take it out of the hands of individuals. Okay. So when you say that the state monopolizes violence, and we're getting to the problematics of Zionism now, we're starting to get a taste. But when we say that, when we say that the state monopolizes violence, what we are saying is that if I get into a fight with Susan, right, I'm not allowed to hit her. I'm not allowed to hit her. I'm not allowed to do that. I'm not allowed to draw my knife or draw my sword and say, let's battle it out. Because I don't have entitlement to violence. Gradually, states are homogenizing in this more and more and more and trying to, trying to sublimate more and more violence and, and push it away. But the more you push it away, the less visible it becomes, the more you are actually handing over that violence to the state. Because when violence is, is completely out of your hands, it goes somewhere. So what happens is that I then appeal to the authority that does have the right to use violence. So I go to a police officer, or I go to the court system, and the court system uses violence. It says, well, let's look at what Susan claims, and let's look at what you claim, and of course, Susan's right, so we're gonna throw you into prison. There you go. That's an act of violence. It is the execution of state violence. And the idea is that if we can sublimate state, if we can sublimate individual violence and put it all in the hands of this abstract state, and somehow find a way, there's a national collection of, there's this national treasure of collective violence, and find as many as many ways as we can of making sure that that violence is dealt with appropriately through checks and balances, and maybe through a democratic system or through a benevolent and benevolent dictatorship or whatever it is. Whoever has that power has the power to manipulate those those mechanisms of violence, and in so doing will prevent those mechanisms of violence from affecting others. Yes? Is this, do you mean to say that as the state, the concept of the state, is a closed system? 
I mean to say that it's a closed system defined by the limitations of the population that has surrendered its violence to the state. Well, it does relate to geographic boundaries because geographic boundaries are put in place by violence. If you look at in the Middle Ages, ge um, the, the, there was no such thing as the state. Generally, political boundaries were, were, were boundaries of language, right? And not, and not of statehood. So uh, you can still see there are places in France today where, where you can still see. Have you, have you heard of the Languedoc and the Languedoc, right? Two regions in France that are defined, that are defined by the different ways in which they said yes. Right, you could either say oui or oc, and and there are still two regions in France that are named after them. But but when you look at most of the the terms for collective identity, they're usually language terms, right? So so there was kind of, and and people moved around. So this was a little bit of a mishmash. Geographic boundaries that are put in 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 position are put in position by acts of violence, right? That's what the state of Israel is trying to do at the moment. We're trying to create final boundaries by creating a balance of power, right? But I, I'm I'm not quite there yet. I'm going to get to that point in just a second. But where I want to where I want to to go right now is just to emphasize the extent to which the sublimation of violence is is crucial to the notion of statehood, and add to that add to that because I don't want to sound negative and judgmental about this. I'm actually trying to tell a positive story here, even though it might come out the other way at this stage, that the idea that the sublimation of violence is crucial to the notion of the state, that idea is central to the notion that the purpose of statehood is peace. Right? That's what we celebrate. Right, so what we celebrate, I was watching CNN just like the rest of you, and when it all wrapped up and they'd finished walking down, walking down, you know, and walk, where is it they walk? Right, they walk down Pennsylvania Avenue in their, in their, in their nice suits and beautiful dress, and everybody's waving and everybody's excited. And then the, when, when, the, when the broadcast is finally finished, you know, the final celebratory remark is there it is, we did it again the peaceful transference of power from one government to another. The purpose of the statehood is the managing of power peacefully. Yes, Avi. I love it when I can do that, yeah. Absolutely, absolutely. Absolutely. So there is, there, is, there is a fundamental experience here which is related to the recognition that on the most intimate level, human interactions are inherently violent. It's, it's, bringing up your children is, is in many ways violent. You're imposing upon your children all sorts of things that they have no power to resist. And the more you recognize that, it, that the most intimate relationships are violent, Right? Violence in the home is not a surprise. Oh, how come there's violence in the home? You know, duh! <laughs> of course there's violence in the home. There are vi relationships are violent. And what the state is, is an attempt to create a superstructure, a massive vacuum cleaner that will suck up or sublimate that violence and monopolize it, and in so doing, empty society from that violence. Yes. In your home. Oh, no. <laughs> in Afghanistan and Iraq, uh, how difficult it is to create a state because of the planning and the inability for you to 
Absolutely. The surrender of violence to the state is absolutely crucial to the success of statehood, which is why terrorism is such a fundamental threat. It's not because of the number of people that it kills. It's because of the fundamental challenge that it poses to the very notion of statehood itself. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. There's this fascinating book that I read last year called Where Have All the Soldiers Gone? Which is this analysis of how, of how Europe has managed to get rid of all of its violence. Um, I don't think I've ever... It's a fascinatingly stupid book. Um, uh, who are they kidding? Uh, who are they kidding? The amount of internal conflict that's just waiting to explode on the European continent at the moment with the, with the meeting of East and West... Um, I mean, it's just, it's remarkable. It's a fascinating book. Fascinating book. Yes, one more, and then I want to push ahead. I didn't really mean it when I said you could ask questions. It was, <laughs> no, I, go ahead. <coughs> yeah. In theory, in theory. Absolutely. I, I'm not talking about America at the moment. I'm talking about the, I'm talking about Europe in the 19th century. Yeah, yeah. No, I'm not. Just, I'm not trying to describe America. Um, I'm describing Europe in the 19th century. I don't think that Zionism. I'm talking about Zionism. Zionism was not modelled on America. Uh, Zionism was modelled on on the European state. Um, so, so that's the context that I'm talking about. Well, the Zionist movement. Sorry. Which Zionism? Oh, absolutely, of course, of course. We're going to get to Gushem Onim. That's, that's lecture three in the series. That's exactly where we're heading. Um, what I'm... What I'm absolutely. Absolutely. At the moment, at the moment we're, we're dealing with this quite abstractly. We're going we're gonna to get closer and closer into Jewish, into Jewish thinking in a second. But there's somebody I have to give it some attention to because he's sitting on the table and saying, you're not talking about me and I need to be noticed. And it's Immanuel Kant. <coughs> and we can't, we can't really go much further. We, we can't go very much further. Oh, we, ca we, can't, we can't go very much further without, without saying something about him. He needs, he needs attention, uh, which I think was his big problem in life. Um, but, but it's fundamental to recognize that the notion of the sublimation of violence does not get rid of the violence. It just moves it to what we believe is a safer place. And Kant is convinced, Kant is convinced, I don't know where he got this from, probably he didn't get out enough, but Kant is convinced that there are fundamental traits that are common to all human beings, that there are fundamental rational qualities that all human beings share. Wasn't he married? <laughs> I, don't, I don't get it. But he's fundamentally convinced in what he calls the categorical imperative that there are, that there, that there are, that there are traits that all human beings can, can naturally subscribe to. And his assumption is that if we sublimate and sublimate and sublimate and sublimate sufficiently, we can create a peaceful 
structure that will transcend all of the boundaries of our own living. And that this superstructure, which will be big enough, will transcend all the violence far, away, far enough away. It will go so far away. It will be virtually on the moon that we will be able to talk about a world that lives in what he calls perpetual peace. It's a wonderful title. I love the, other, the alliterations. We had prophecy and, po and pathos yesterday. It's perpetual peace today. <coughs> but <coughs> for Kant, this is a fundamental principle. It's a fundamental idea. He is a very, very religious person, by the way. Kant is a very religious thinker. But he's engaged in a kind of political theology that secularizes the notion of the state all the way to the idea of there being a superstructure that is going to be big enough to contain all of that violence. <coughs> Excuse me. I have a little bit of that water over there. Thank you. The, um, thank you very much. The idea of, the perpetu of perpetual peace is essentially the birth of international politics. And Kant, even though it takes a very long time to implement, Kant envisions a League of Nations, a United Nations, or a kind of superpower, very different from the American superpower, where the power is really out in the open. But the idea is a kind of superpower that will theoretically have enough, enough rationality in its rationale, in its constitution. Its, con its constitution will fit well enough with the categorical imperative that all of the power in this huge entity will be, will be sublimated away. And that there will be a pure form of international justice that all of us will be able to embrace. And as such, without using power, pure rational judgment will get rid of all the violence which is sublimated in each state and allow for a perpetual peace to rule in the world. So here's my thesis for today. And in a second, I'm going to support it. My thesis for today is, given all of this backdrop, all of this philosophical backdrop, I'm trying to retell the history of Zionism, okay? And I'd like to make two claims about the history of Zionism. I'd like to say, number one, that the history of Zionism is the Jewish attempt to be part of this Kantian superstructure. The Jewish people want to participate by presenting Judaism as sufficiently rational to live up to the categorical imperative, by presenting Judaism as significant within the cultures of the world, by being a state capable of sublimating this violence, and in so doing, to exonerate the Jewish people from implication, from being implicated by violence, and to establish the perpetual safety of the Jewish people in the Kantian picture of perpetual peace. That's claim number one, and I don't think you can understand Kaftet Benovembel the 29th of November, and the significance of such events as the Balfour Declaration, and of course the Declaration of Independence, Dafka in the United Nations, uh, 
I don't think you can understand the significance of these events in Zionist culture without looking without looking at this at this history. The Jewish people were what's the word I'm looking for vindicated. The Zionist idea was fundamentally vindicated by this notion of the Balfour Declaration, which is kind of a superpower saying you've got a place in this land, and the United Nations Declaration of Independence. All of the people living in Israel today who say, okay, we're not going to talk about 1948, let's talk about 1967. We're prepared to evaluate the ethics of what happened in 1967, yes, no. Right? But the ethics of 1948, the fundamental principle of justification for the Jewish presence in the land of Israel and for the Jewish state, is rooted in a vote that took place on the 29th of November 1947 in the United Nations. That is an axiomatic self-justification for the existence of the Jewish state. Even, by the way, for, the religious, for religious Zionism. Right, Soloveitchik is one of those people who articulates it beautifully in his description of the vote, where he, I don't know if any of you have read this, but Soloveitchik describes how the angel of God is, is flying around the room as, this, as these votes are being cast and gives this event significant religious meaning. Even though it took place after Rav Kook died, and Rav Kook, I think, and I'll talk about this, would have understood it very differently, but the followers of Rav Kook saw this moment as the moment of Malchut Yisrael. Right? Malchut, Hamlachat Malchut Yisrael, the coronation of Israel. The re-establishment of Israel in international law was so important because the Zionist narrative is a Western narrative that's rooted in this idea by Kant. That's my first point. Second point. Oh, can, can, can I go on? Yeah, no, you go ahead. Ask your question and then I'll make the second point. Yeah, but I'm concerned that you might ask my point. Ask my question. Go ahead. Has also? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Well that's, well, that's one of the fundamental principles of Vatican II. That's, that's one of the issues in, in Vatican II, is how can we talk about salvation outside of the church? And if we can talk about salvation outside of the church, then we're trying to separate the notion of, of Catholicism from Christendom. Christendom and Catholicism were never separated until the 1960s. It's incredible. And one of the most brilliant writers on this is a, is a, is, is a Catholic philosopher by the name of Charles Taylor whose description of modernity in a book called The Sources of the Self really looks at the question of, of the competition between the secular state and, and, and the Catholic notion of the state and how the two, and how the two interchanged. So it's a, it's a fascinating subject. You're absolutely right. There are other competitors. But what I have to say is much, is much worse than that. Um, there's a bigger problem than that. There's a bigger problem than that. Uh, you're right. Religion and the perpetuation of religion and the use of religious power, they're, they're big issues, and, and I, think, I think we need to talk about them. I actually think they, they are, they're more redemptive than they are a threat. Um, and, and that's what I'm going to argue when we get to Gush Emunim. But, but let, me, let, me show you, let me show you, let me make the problem quite clear, because at the moment I've left you with a very fuzzy picture of Kant. There are two problems. 
The two problems are called Hegel and World War One. And, and they're kind of the same problem. Hegel said, you know, this is cute. This is cute. It's one of the most important books in ever written, this book. Really, in certain in, in modern times. Um, but Hegel said, if you sublimate violence into superstructures, then the superstructures will just go to war against each other. And people don't like Hegel because he said, you know, that's going to happen and it probably should happen and that's just the way the world is. And he, he saw this as a kind of... A kind of um, corrective. You know, when things get dull, so we'll, we'll bash each other up a bit and then, and then, you know, there'll be a lot of blood spilt and we'll start again. And, and Hegel resigned himself to this. Hegel actually saw this as part of the evolution of progress. Hegel had this notion, not of perpetual peace, but of perpetual evolution, a perpetual cultural ev evolution, which wasn't really perpetual because he thought of himself as the pinnacle of creation, but, but he really did. It's amazing. Few people are that honest about themselves. But like, humanity is going to basically accomplish um, me, me. <laughs> he says it, and you, whoa! <laughs> What would it, I wonder what it's like being his kid. Um, but he was smart. And, and, and people don't like Hegel because he, 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 he burst the bubble. He burst the bubble. I think Hegel was brilliant. I don't like him either, but he was brilliant. You don't enjoy reading Hegel. You don't want him to be right. But oh boy. And if anybody had any doubts, World War I. World War I was an absolute calamity for Kant's notion of perpetual peace. Because what World War I proved more than anything else is that people can go to the most incredibly destructive ends just to burn off that power that has been, that violence that has been sublimated and sublimated and sublimated and sublimated and it's just got to go somewhere. What was World War I about? Absolutely nothing. How many millions and millions of people were killed for absolutely nothing? And what the states demonstrated in World War I was that they were more effective machines of war than anything that anyone had ever come up with before. All of that sublimated violent energy was, no, I'm not going to kill you. Let's build a factory together and we'll build tanks and planes and bombs and we'll do that together and we'll give them to the state. And there'll be more and more and more states with more and more of this wonderful industry producing all of these wonderful products and then we'll blow each other up with them. And that's what World War was all about. There was an existential boredom in Europe at the end of the 19th century that just wait, was just waiting to burst. And even although many, many Zionist thinkers, to get to my point, even though many, many Zionist thinkers thought that the Zionist state should still carry on according to the same plan that culminated in the accomplishments of 1948, and ignore World War I, right? The truth is that World War I was there and it had a tremendous impact. And the only thing I think that allowed World War I to lose its impact and lose its force 
was World War II. Because people didn't notice that World War II was just the same as World War I. And the reason they didn't notice that World War II was about states is because when we talk about political morals and ethics, it was kind of easier to present World War II as a war between the good guys and the bad guys. And because we thought we could talk about World War II in terms of moral absolutism rather than moral relativism, because, hey, look, there's a rogue state. That's a bad state, so we've got to crush them. It's, it's, a, it's a moral quest. And don't, don't get me otherwise by the way, thank you, Winston Churchill. We're very grateful to you for all that you did. Um, but I think that nobody knows better than the Jewish people that World War II was as much about mindless, senseless, destructive violence as World War I. And the Jewish people understand this. The Jewish people know about this. So what I think is very interesting, and here I'm just going to, I'm going to share one or two one or two Jewish thinkers with you. I've, I'm going to do it in seven minutes. Um, what I think is very interesting is to notice that even though the dominant drive in Zionist thinking was not telling the story the way I'm telling it today. I'm telling a very different story of the history of Zionism from the one that you're used to. Right? I'm assuming that you know the one that you're used to and that you don't bring somebody all the way over from Israel to tell it to you again, right? So I'm telling you a different version of the history of Zionism from the one that you're used to. I think that, that some of the most interesting Zionist thinkers were actually conscious of this issue, they were traumatized by World War I, and they were fundamentally threatened by the flaws of the notion of the state and determined to issue a corrective to those flaws. In other words, Zionism wasn't like being am kechol ha'amim, which brings me back to your point, but Zionism was about reinventing the state. The idea of not the state for the Jews, right? There's a big fight about what does der Judenstadt mean, right? Is it the state for the Jews or is it the Jewish state? Okay, so when you go back to Kant's perpetual peace, and I won't drag you through it now, he begins the book with a scathing criticism of Judaism. Because Judaism, the way he reads the Bible, is full of us. It's a small-minded God who's a jealous God who's, who's basically declaring war against other gods. So Judaism is for him fundamentally a war of the one God against all the other gods. And, you know, let's get rid of that. Then he goes on to Christianity and then, oh, let's get rid of that. And he moves on and on until he, until he presents the fundamental principle of the categorical imperative as the foundation of modern politics. Great. But... but Jews are responding to this and they're saying, what is he talking about? So Yehuda Benovich, I don't know if any of you have ever heard of him, but he was the first person to translate anything by Kant into Hebrew in 1924. And he produces Hashalom Hanitzchi, which is his translation of Kant. And he writes a long introduction and he says, Hashalom Hanitzchi is great. It's just such a shame that Kant didn't really see what Judaism was all about. And he starts quoting Yishayahu. Right? And he articulates a vision of the Jewish state as being capable of accomplishing peace in ways that the, that the secular state, without learning the messages of the Jewish prophets, will never be able to achieve. It's a fascinating, fascinating vision. I'd like to share with you 
I think, a remarkable text by probably the greatest Kabbalist of the 20th century, the author of the commentary on the Zohar known as the Sulam. I don't know if any of you are ever, have ever studied Zohar, but if you have, don't tell your friends. But, but the author... What? You have it. Good. Well, if you've read the Sulam by, by Ashlag, then you might know that he wrote a phenomenal article entitled Hashalom. Right? And Ashlag is, is a, uh, don't get me wrong here, this is not a Kipasruga wearing religious Zions. This is a, you know, a, a, a Haredi looking Jew who's writing about the whole notion of the Jewish state. And saying, I've got it here in Hebrew, but I, 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 I can read and translate little bits of it for you. But he's writing about the idea of the Jewish state. And in writing about the idea of the Jewish state in the 1930s, Ashlag says the whole purpose of the state is peace and the state has failed. The state. If there is going to be any value to the idea of the Jewish state, it has to issue a corrective by learning the messages of Judaism and presenting a notion of the state. Not as accomplishing, I'm not talking now about solving the Arab-Israel conflict. Leave that aside. The Jewish state is supposed to model a notion of the state better suited to accomplishing Kant's purpose, having learned the messages of World War I, the Jewish state will produce the real state of perpetual peace through not the categorical imperative, but the notion of achdut habore, right? The unity of the Creator, the notion of God. This is how he finishes his, his article. I'll translate in a second. I just enjoy the Hebrew for a bit. Only if the Jewish state produces peace for the whole world, says Ashlag, will that state be worthy of the blessings of our fathers, in, in other words, the covenant that entitles the Jewish people to return to the world. Another one, I think that's an incredible statement, but another one that, that I'll just finish off with is Shmuel Aharon Tamaret, who was, a, who was a member of the Zionist Congress. He spoke at the 14th Zionist Congress. They were actually very, very excited about him because he, um, he struggled against the Paul Mizrahi. He struggled against the Haredim, the ultra-Orthodox, who rejected the Zionist idea. And because of that, he was elected as a representative to the Zionist Congress. But here I have you know, a, fasc a fascinating connect co collection of his writings. It's actually in handwriting. Uh, they also printed it up in square print, but they reproduced his manuscript in handwriting. But the, the collection is called Pacifism by the Torah, right? Pacifism le'or Torah. But what is so interesting about him, I'm not a pacifist, but what is so interesting about Tamret's reading is that he articulates a vision for Zionism that is very, very sim similar to the vision that we've just encountered in Ashlag. And then he went to the Zionist Congress. And when he went to the Zionist Congress, he said, you know what? 
if the purpose of the Jewish state is to be am kechol ha'amin, is to be a nation like every other nation, in other words, to establish a neo-Kantian state for the Jews rather than a Jewish state for the world, this isn't going anywhere. And he writes in the, 19, he writes in the 1920s, if the Jewish people don't le learn the lessons of the First World War, the collective decision of the Jewish people to define their identity in, f in the form of statehood will bring us into an era of perpetual Jewish violence. And such an era will destroy what it means to be Jewish. Now, I hear those words reverberating across history, and I think he's got a point. So my fundamental question, I'm going to leave you with a question, is, is the DNA of statehood as it exists the correct DNA for the Jewish people to buy into? And are there Zionist thinkers whose voices we haven't listened to, who are not interested in producing a state that will be a homeland for the Jews and that will allow the Jews to be am kechol ha'amin? But in the context of the nations, if the Jewish people are am skula, can we talk about in the context of the statehoods in the world about a Medinat Skula? And if we can talk about a Medinat Skula, which has a unique take on the very concept of statehood itself, perhaps we can use this as the foundation for articulating a new Zionism that will see the purpose of the State of Israel as accomplishing something that the notion of the modern state has so far proved itself totally inadequate at doing. So I'm going to look. I, this, is, this, is, this is the project of the book that I'm writing. And what I'd like to do, if you get up for breakfast again and again, what I'd like to do is to look at two models that I think are very productive. And they come from absolutely opposite camps in the Zionist movement. The first is we're going to look at the thinking of Martin, Martin Buber, who I think gives an answer to this question. Right? It's an interesting answer to this question. You can evaluate it and see what you think of it. And I'm going to have reservations about it. But next time we're going to look at Martin Buber as somebody who gives an answer to this question. And then I'm going to give you a curveball. And I'm going to suggest that there is another answer to this question that comes from the least likely corner of the Zionist movement, the one that we tend to think of as being most profoundly militant. But I want to present the notion of Gush Emunim as also being directed at providing a fundamental answer to this question as well. So we're going to see it from Buber and we're going to see it from Gush Emunim. Not Rav Kook, Dafka. I'm going to go away from Rav Kook. Right? Rav Kook is not Gush Emunim. He's the, he's the ideological father of Gush Emunim, but he's not Gush Emunim. We're going to look at the, at, at the actual thinkers engaged in Gush Emunim and see if from there we can also articulate an answer to this question of what it would be to construct a Medinat Skula that somehow overcomes the flaws of the state as Kant described it, as Hegel demonstrated it, and as we all learned after the experiences of the First World War. So that's, that's for breakfast. <laughs> Questions? Anybody want to ask any questions? Feel free to go. I'm happy to stick around and answer questions.
interesting question. Um, empires, empires don't try to create either political equality or cultural cohesion, right? They embrace, they embrace. Well, both there are hierarchies of cultures inside empires, right? Empire isn't the same thing as a mega state, right? A mega state is a state. But empires try to create some kind of cultural cohesion, right? The, your, the, the, the omnipresence of statehood applies all the time, right? Which, which is exactly the opposite of cultural cohesion. That's, that's, that's colonialization, right? So somebody needs, there is a culture that is being co colonialized in order for an empire to be an empire, right? Which isn't the same thing as a confederate state or a mega state. Sorry? No, it doesn't, because if a state is a st well, if it's an empire, it's an empire, but if it's a megastate with different cultures in it, there's usually some underlying fundamental cultural buy-ins that create the commonality that is, that is the state. That's the case in America, for example. Coming a little bit closer, I think we're having a one-on-one -on -one conversation. Yeah.